Welcome to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast, brought to you by Limitless Estates, where Kyle and Lolita talk to top experts and seasoned passive investors in the business to help provide clarity and key insights to keep you safe on your journey to financial freedom. Our goal is to help you get educated on how to create passive income for you and your family by using real estate as your vehicle. Now, here are your hosts, Kyle and Lolita. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast. I'm your co-host, Lolita, also joined by Kyle. On the show with us today, Tyler Carter. Tyler, great to have you on our show. How's it going? It's going really well. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being on. Uh, Before we get into the interview, here's a little bit about Tyler. Tyler has a degree in economics from Florida State University. He has a passion for alternative investments and now serves as director of New Views Institutional Sales Department. He spends his days educating investors, advisors, and broker-dealers on alternative investments for retirement accounts. So I'm super intrigued, and self-directed IRAs is something I've always been wanting to learn more so about. So with that being said, Tyler, could you please tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you currently do? Sure, I'd be happy to. So after school, uh, I began my career at Fidelity Investments in an advisory role, and I spent about five years there. Um, and I don't have anything negative to say about them. It was a fantastic company, still is if you're interested in any sort of publicly traded investments. However, after about five years from one of, one of my more savvy clients, I learned that there was a much broader scope of investment opportunities that was available inside of retirement accounts. Previously, I had thought that stocks, bonds, mutual funds, CDs, and ETFs were the best and only option. Uh, for people to hold inside of IRAs, solo 401ks, and so forth. Um, But through that client, actually, I realized that almost anything, uh, whether it's publicly traded or not, can be done inside of an IRA. I was really intrigued about that, and I felt sort of shortchanged that I wasn't made aware of all the other options that were feasible inside of uh, retirement accounts. It was then that I learned about self-directed IRAs, and shortly after that, I took a position with um, Newview Trust, and I've been there for about the past five years, and uh, it's exciting to sit behind my desk and see all the interesting alternative investments that people are making inside of their self-directed IRAs. Mm -hmm. Thanks for explaining that. So can you explain a little bit more about how a self-directed IRA works and how people use that tool? Sure. And it's something, uh, something of an anomaly because... Of, of all the financially savvy people that are out there, it's still a relatively well-kept secret that your IRA can make alternative investments. So our motto at Newview Trust is more choices and more control because that's exactly what we give our clients. Instead of choosing from you know the publicly traded markets or relying on an advisor, our clients come to us for the exclusive reason to invest into something where they feel like they're an expert in. Our clients leverage their knowledge bases and can invest into just about anything uh, outside the realm of life insurance and collectibles. While most of the major brokerages and wirehouses confine you to a certain menu of investments, we're essentially a, a financial services company that while we don't provide advice or guidance, 
We help our clients leverage their knowledge base to invest on a tax deferred or tax free basis into you know thousands of investments they never thought possible. And you're what I think people would call a custodian, correct? You're a third party company that's called a custodian, basically the in-between person between the actual investment and the IRA itself. That's exactly right. So I wish I had kind of an easier job where I could say I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm an accountant or a firefighter. Custodian probably isn't the sexiest title, but it is very interesting. So the IRS has said that through IRAs, investors can enjoy all sorts of uh, tax privileges and benefits. However, they have have to operate within a certain confines of, of rules and other sort of regulatory items. You can't simply open an account and call it your IRA. You have to have a custodian, and that's exactly what Newview Trust is. So Newview Trust is very much like a Fidelity Schwab to the Ameritrader Fidelity with a few major caveats. We don't give any investment advice or guidance, and we don't deal in any publicly traded securities. So we're kind of the in-between. We're basically a, a trust company, so all of our accounts are held in trust someone opens a retirement account with us because they have a desire to make some sort of investment that isn't feasible with most financial services companies. Okay, like a Fidelity? Right. So as I mentioned before, Fidelity is a great company. However, if you wanted to invest into a non-public REIT, you know, that's in the multifamily space or an assisted living facility, if you wanted to buy rental real estate, a tax deed, a tax deed, a tax lien, or anything like that that's outside the realm of, of having a ticker symbol, it's just not feasible with those other custodians. So our you know, sole purpose is to facilitate anything that the IRS allows for inside of retirement accounts that all the other major firms that everyone has heard of aren't already dealing with. Okay, got it. And can you explain the process of setting up a self-directed IRA? Is that uh, difficult to do? No, it's relatively straightforward, and it's funny. You know, I'll uh, address the, the term self-directed IRA. That's sort of the industry jargon and the mainstream term of the type of account that we deal with. Everyone's heard of an IRA, whether it's a Roth IRA, a traditional IRA, a simple IRA, or a SEP IRA. We deal with all of the same types of accounts. And this term self-directed it's really just industry jargon to indicate that this is a type of account that can invest outside the confines of the stock market. Uh, opening one up is no different really than opening an account at Merrill Lynch or Schwab. You have the ability to go online uh, and open an account in 10 to 15 minutes. And the vast majority of the time, it ends up being less expensive to go into these alternative investments when you factor in mutual fund expense ratios and other fees of, of the traditional markets. Okay, and are there fees associated with setting up a self-directed IRA? And what are those fees? Yeah, abso absolutely. Well, we want our clients to retire well. We certainly, we aren't a charity and we do turn a small profit for all the effort that we put forth. As a general rule, and you can see fees vary across the industry or certainly on the lower side, but you can expect to pay, you know, roughly $300 a year or so to hold some sort of alternative investment inside of your retirement plan you consider the average actively managed mutual fund expense ratio is about uh, you know one and a quarter percent depending on the dollar invested the vast majority of the time it's less expensive to hold an alternative investment inside of your retirement account 
Okay. And so are there certain types of IRAs that cannot be self-directed? I had a situation when I had my full-time job where I was unable to self-direct because I was under a company IRA. I'm not sure exactly how that worked, but could you touch on that? Yeah, absolutely. So if it was an employer-sponsored plan, was it a 401k, I'm guessing? It was. Yeah. So a 401k, a 403b, a 457, all of these employer-sponsored retirement plans, it's going to be a case-by-case basis in terms of whether they have the ability to make alternative investments. If you were an attorney in an office of five people, you might still have a retirement plan, but they might be much more yielding in terms of the rules, um, in terms of allowing you to make some sort of alternative investment. The vast majority of the time, um, most employer-sponsored retirement plans will not allow you to make alternative investments. If you have a 401k, a 403b, or any other sort of employer-sponsored plan from a previous employer, those can all be rolled over and consolidated into self-directed accounts where you would have the fullest possible scope of investment options. Uh, it's, it's really case-by-case basis. I don't want to paint in broad strokes, but as a general rule of thumb, that applies. Now, once the money is actually an IRA, you know, and no longer tied to your employer, whether it's a SEP IRA, a simple IRA, a Roth or a traditional IRA, all of those types of accounts have the same rules in terms of what the IRS says they can invest. Got it. Okay. And I believe a self-directed IRA is subject to what's called a UBIT tax at times. Can you explain what that is to the listeners? Well, it really depends. And there's two sorts of taxes, you know, that an IRA can incur. One is UBIT, you know, unrelated business income tax, or sometimes it's UBTI, unrelated business taxable income. There's also another one called UDFI, unrelated debt financed income tax. These are taxes that an IRA can sometimes occur when it's not investing in the way that, you know, I guess everyone envisioned IRAs would. It would be much like, um, to give an example of unrelated business income tax, I live here uh, in Orlando, Florida, and we have a lot of really large churches. And I was driving down one of our toll roads, and I saw that there was a really large cross that had been erected, and I thought, you know, gosh, what an imposing landmark. I later learned that that cross actually had a cell tower inside of it and that the church, a tax-exempt entity, was renting out the bandwidth from this cross you know, to provide additional income to the church. Now, obviously, much like a church, an IRA has certain tax benefits and advantages. However, when an IRA is acting outside the realm of just a regular passive investment, Uh, that tax can apply. The IRS would look at that church and say, look, all of the money that comes into the, you know, church on Sundays from service, that's certainly exempt from taxes. But you can't put this cell tower up and call it, you know, a church business. That's a separate endeavor entirely. The same thing applies inside of an IRA. If I buy a piece of rental real estate, you know, and I put a tenant in it and I rent it out, it's a passive deal. I'm not running a business. This is a simple rental transaction, I'm not going to be subject to that unrelated business uh, income tax. However, if I decide that I'm going to buy raw land and clear it and develop some sort of real estate project and so forth, and my IRA can be seen as operating a business, not simply making a passive investment, 
that tax can apply. The other scenario where unrelated business income tax applies is if I'm investing into a fund that has kind of a flow through tax consequence, if the taxes are being paid at the corporate level, it's likely that my IRA is going to be exempt from that. However, in some cases, it does flow through. Now, it's a rare occasion that I see anyone who has decided not to go through with an investment because of this tax, right? As much as I don't want to pay a penny more than I have to in taxes, I still recognize that taxes are a consequence of turning a profit. So in this case, you know, it's certainly something I would want to be aware of up front, but I know plenty of clients who still happily go into deals that do engender uh, UBIT because the net result is still positive. The reason that I mentioned the unrelated debt finance income tax, that's something that very few people are aware of. That would occur if I were to buy a piece of real estate. We'll go back to the example of our rental property. Let's just say I buy a property for $100,000. That's possible in some rural areas in Florida. And I buy it with $50,000 out of my IRA, and I take on a non-recourse mortgage to finance the other $50,000. For some hypothetical fortuitous set of circumstances, I sell this property almost immediately for $150,000. We can agree I've profited $50,000, but the IRS is going to say, look, Tyler, you didn't turn that profit. It wasn't engendered entirely by your IRA investment. It was only through the use of leverage that you were able to achieve that result. Therefore, because 50% of my profit was leveraged, 50% or rather 50% of my purchase price was leveraged, 50% of my profit or $25,000 would be subject to unrelated debt financed income tax at the trust tables rates, which ratchet up pretty quickly. I'm actually really glad you asked that question because I would bet a lot of your listeners are probably self-employed without any common law employees. The reason I bring all of this up is that while IRAs are subject to this unrelated debt finance income tax, there's a type of account called a solo 401k. And that's basically something for people who are self-employed without employees, they are exempt from that tax. So we have quite a few savvy clients who are making real estate investments, implementing leverage, and being exempt from that tax. Oh, that's really good to know. Okay. And so the UBIT tax, is that tax at a specific percentage or does it, is that based on your situation? Yeah, it's based on your situation. Unfortunately, it's based on the trust rates which ratchet up pretty quickly, you know, don't quote me off the top of my head, but I mean, you can't make much more than $15,000 or so before you're already in the, the top rate. Okay. And you already mentioned with the UBIT tax, there are certain restrictions with investing with your RA. What are some of the other guidelines? I know it's pretty strict and you want to be careful on how you handle your money and how you're paid out and so forth to make sure that you're following the guidelines properly. Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you kind of the, uh, the Reader's Digest version of some of the rules. The IRS stipulates that any investment made through self-directed IRA must be passive and at arm's length, that you can't invest into disqualified investments or prohibited investments, and you can't involve disqualified parties. So what that really translates to is your IRA cannot invest into life insurance or collectibles. You know, so you can't put your Beanie Baby collection in your IRA, unfortunately. <laughs> and you can't get any personal benefit from any investment that your IRA makes. So 
you don't have the ability to buy a piece of real estate with your in it, or buy a commercial building and you know run your business out of it. You can't have any personal benefit. It must be passive and at arm's length. So if you bought a piece of real estate that you were going to rehab and so forth, you can certainly do that, but you can't be the guy there who's swinging the hammer. The component about uh, disqualified parties, essentially it's direct lineal ascendants, descendants, their spouses or any business they control. I always remember that by thinking about the family tree. It's the trunk of the family tree that's prohibited, not any of the branches. So as I mentioned here in Orlando, if I bought a you know vacation rental condo over at New Smyrna Beach, I would not be allowed, and I did this through my IRA, I wouldn't be allowed to rent it to someone like my grandmother. Um, however, other uh, relatives, aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews, brothers, and sisters would not be expressly disqualified. So if I wanted to rent this condo to my brother, I wouldn't be afoul of the rules so long as I'm not giving him any sort of preferential treatment. So those are sort of the general parameters for making sure that you're staying on the right side of the IRS. Don't swing a hammer. You're not putting any you know, physical effort into the investment that you've made. All income that's generated as proceeds from any investment made by your IRA must flow directly back to the IRA. And then, of course, any expenses that are incurred must be paid for out of the IRA. So your profit, of course, is the difference between your income and expenses in these scenarios. Don't involve certain family members and just make sure that there's not any kind of personal benefit that you're getting outside of, you know, growing your IRA to a larger figure. Got it. And so let's say I did um, have one of those situations where I decided to invest my 401k in a rental property and I did rent it to my parents and I personally benefited, they personally benefited. What happens at that point? I mean, I would hope that you have a good CPA. Quite honestly, I think it probably varies across the board. I always use the analogy to suggest that I'm not the uh, I'm not the police. I'm not the one pulling people over for speeding, but I'm certainly the guy who's responsible for hammering in the speed limit sign. You know, I take it very seriously to ensure that everyone feels like they're making a well-informed decision, that they know all the rules, so that everything they do is above board. And you know, I think in some cases maybe you could you know, plead mercy and have a CPA write a letter. But honestly, nobody should be making any sort of self-directed IRA investment unless it's something that they're A, willing to defend to the IRS and then B, you know, confidently feel as though that they're um, pretty well aware of their rules. The rules, although they aren't always specific, um, if you have a good grasp of them, you shouldn't have any trouble, you know, staying down the straight and narrow uh, being completely in compliance. There's too many opportunities to make money inside of self-directed IRAs to risk it by doing something that approaches the flames. So could, I guess what I'm uh, trying to get an answer on is let's just say you had a million dollars in your self-direct or in your IRA and you self-direct 200,000 of it and you are within an arm's length distance or, or whatever the term is, are you now subject to your entire IRA being at risk because of that one transaction? Yeah, I mean, I think it certainly could be. Okay. You know, if you do something that's that's deemed a prohibited transaction, and that's what they call them, I mean, they can essentially blow up your IRA, distribute it to you. You would have a tax liability, you know, for the entire amount of the IRA in addition to any other, you know, penalties that are levied against you. 
I certainly am not on the enforcement side, apart from, you know, making sure that everyone's aware of all the rules and taking the responsibility to operate well within the confines of them. But um, I'm glad I haven't seen, you know, very many examples. I don't think I haven't seen any examples at Newview of where someone has, has gotten in trouble, although I've read a few court cases where people have had accounts elsewhere and have done things that were egregiously afoul of the rules. I think that 99.9% of IRA investors, you know, take the uh, the rules very seriously. And uh, thankfully, you know, a big part of my day is answering questions about, you know, whether something is, is uh, you know, up to par or compliant. Got it. What's the best way for investors to source a custodian? It, it sounds like the custodian is kind of the major player here that you want to make sure you're with a trusted source, maybe a, a star rating or something like that. Is there somewhere where they can go to find that? Well, I mean, like anything else, you can go online and, and read reviews, you know, of one company over another. I think that if I were shopping around for a custodian, I would make a few phone calls and I would figure out, you know, are these people accessible? You know, if they're not immediately accessible, are, are they at least responsive? Uh, and beyond that, does the person that I'm speaking with seem knowledgeable and do they seem happy to take the time to, to work with me and answer all of my questions? One of the things that I pride myself on at Newview is that all of our staff recognizes this isn't something that people do every day, right? We might deal with someone who's a savvy investor. They've clicked a mouse a thousand times to buy and sell publicly traded securities, but most people don't come to us with extensive experience investing into a non-traded REIT or a physical piece of real estate or whatever it may be. I would say call around and kind of interview custodians. Um, you know, certainly some people look to fees and fees vary somewhat across the industry. In the green scheme of things, you know, you'll probably see from one company to another annual fees might differ from one, you know, maybe $200 a year but everyone's pretty much in line with price. I think the greatest uh, differentiator, you know, when choosing a custodian is probably the level of service that you receive. Awesome. Thanks for that. And uh, Lolita is going to take us into our final four questions now. All right, Tyler, sure. here we go. So what is the one tool that you use in real estate investing that you could not do without? That's an excellent question. You know, I was thinking about this and while there's a handful of them, it's probably other people's experience. You know, it's really cheesy, but I think having a good team is probably the most important component out there. I don't possess enough expertise across the spectrum, you know, to consider myself an expert in any one particular area of real estate investing. I think the more that I learn, the more that I realize there's so much that I don't know. Um, I wish I could pin it down and tell you that it's one tool in particular, but realistically, I just think it's having an expansive network of subject matter experts that I can rely on where if I have a question about a assisted living facility, I know a handful of experts that I can ask about that. If, you know, there's something, maybe it's a mobile home deal or, or, you know, something like that. I've got another group of people that I can turn to. I'm probably uniquely positioned in the industry because I get to speak with so many experts on a regular basis. And I don't think there's anything else more valuable uh, than that that I deal with on a regular basis. No, that's a great answer. Can you tell us a story about your biggest mistake in real estate investing so far? And what is the main takeaway for our listeners? Yeah, I certainly can. Um, 
You know, and I think that's an excellent question too, because you always hear about people's real estate successes. It's almost like a gambler mentality, right? They come back from the dog trap and tell you about how the <laughs> five horse and the or fifth dog in the third race did so well, but you don't hear very much about specific losses. I think the biggest mistake that I've made kind of consistently is probably a combination of experiencing you know, paralysis by analysis and not being confident in myself enough to pull the trigger on a deal where I thought maybe I should hold out for something that's going to return 2% higher. And now several years later, looking back, you know, I would love to have so many of the deals that I passed up. You know, I don't know about how it is where you guys are, but you know, the, there's not as many bank owned properties or easy foreclosures to pick up. Everything's gotten more competitive. I think with HGTV and everything else out there that mm -hmm. everyone's interested in being a real estate investor. To me, it's just been, you know, not pulling the trigger when the numbers made sense because I thought something better would come along. Right. And so just basically paralysis by analysis would be my answer to that one. Yeah, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of uh, The Reluctant Investor. It's kind of a poem. And um, that's a good one for people to look up if they see it. It's, it's exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's funny because, you know, I've talked to so many people who are, you know, leaders in their field or an industry that, you know, the, the successful surgeon or an engineer. And um, they want to have every component under control. Um, but they're working a full-time job and they're expecting to be a full-time real estate investor and a full-time doctor or engineer at the same time. Those things don't reconcile. So I certainly appreciate this podcast and I really do think that there's a case to be made for leveraging, you know, expertise. I gave the example a few minutes ago, kind of the paralysis by analysis. I have spent so much time picking other people's brains about particular deals that I would have had my cash deployed sooner and would probably have a better return if I would have just made a passive investment along with a lot of people that I consider to be experts who are in this industry full time, as opposed to someone like myself who's trying to manage a career and personal investments. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, question number three, what is it that you need to do now to grow your life to the next level? You know, I think it's really just discipline more than anything. Um, I touched on kind of deal flow not being what it once was. And, you know, after traveling, speaking, doing whatever for work, sometimes, you know, um, having the discipline to look through the deals that my, you know, realtor friend has sent me, I think really it's just kind of consistently sticking to a plan earmarking time no matter what, you know, to kind of carry out the plan and goals that I've set for myself. I try to break things down into manageable portions, but it's easy to let the day get the best of me. And I think in, in, you know, in 2019, one of my main initiatives is to just reflect and say, does the action that I'm taking now contribute to the goals that I've laid out? Mm -hmm. I guess, you know, it's really just self-discipline more than anything else. Yeah, that's great. And lastly, Tyler, where can people find out more about you? Well, they can visit newviewtrust.com. That's uh, our company. It's N-U-V-I-E-W-Trust.com. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm very approachable. I love hearing about all the deals that people are doing, and I'm happy to answer questions. So people are welcome to go to the website, call our office, 
send me a message on LinkedIn and, and certainly let me know how I can be of assistance. It's less than 2% of the investing population that has any idea that these sorts of things are possible. So I'm there to be a resource and I like to pay it forward. So if anyone has any questions, they're welcome to uh, get in touch with me. That's great. Thanks for educating all of us and providing most, if not all of us, with another outlet of how to just get started in real estate investing. So we really appreciate your time. I really appreciate you guys having me. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Tyler. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the passive income through multifamily real estate podcast and to get access to today's show notes and to previous shows, visit limitless-estates.com. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to the podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in again next week for another episode.